Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird, a podcast that tells you all you need to know about an individual bird species with a laid-back atmosphere. Now today's bird, if you've ever camped in the eastern United States, you've probably heard it around the campfire, woken up in the middle of the night to its hooting calls. It is the barred owl, B-A-R-R-E-D, not the barn owl. And this owl's pretty common and very vocal. And when you hear its vocalizations, it can sound like a dog or uh, someone making messing with you in the woods or some people say Sasquatch, as we'll hear. But in today's episode, I'll take you through the general description of this uh, animal, its evolutionary history, and also some myths and legends surrounding it. Now this is a special episode because it's kind of a part two to the episode right before it, which is an interview with Peter Singleton, who is a research wildlife biologist out in the Pacific Northwest. And check out that episode. We talk all about the barred owl and the spotted owl. There's kind of a conservation crisis going on there as the barred owl starts to invade the spotted owl's territory. But I won't rehash that here, so give it a listen. I will, however, be joined by my good friend, Tim, later on in this episode, and we'll discuss some highlights from that interview and also go over some cool personal stories that we all have about the barred owls. So the barred owl's genus and species name is Strix varia. Now the species name varia just means varied, but Strix has a pretty cool story behind it. The Strix genus contains the wood owls, which are medium-sized owls that have round heads, no horns, uh, like the great horned owl, and uh, they live in kind of dense canopy mature forests. Now Strix, like a lot of genus names, comes to us from the ancient Greeks. So put on your sandals and your togas and let's take a journey of how this name came to be. Our story starts with Polyphonte, a beautiful Greek girl uh, with an illustrious ancestry. Her mom is Thrasa, um, and her mom was born uh, as a product of Ares, the god of war, knocking sandals with the daughter of a river god. So she's kind of demigod in her own sense. Now, Polyphante had pledged herself to abstinence and had taken up with 
um, Artemis. Artemis is the goddess of chastity, of women, um, and also of hunting. So Polyphonte went off in the hills with Artemis and, you know, they were just hunting and hanging out together and like, we don't need no men. But this evoked the wrath of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And displaying some of the cruel irony that Greek tales are known for, Aphrodite, angry at Polyphonte's chastity, casts a spell on her and causes her to lust after a bear. And one thing leads to another, and Polyphonte ends up dipping into Pooh's honey jar, if you know what I mean. And as soon as she does, the spell breaks, and she's kind of uh, aghast at what has happened. So she goes and, and runs to her good friend Artemis that she's just been out in the hills with. But instead of being a good friend and supporting Polyphonte, buying her some chocolate and talking about how much boy bears suck, Artemis is disgusted with Polyphonte and turns all the animals of the wild against her. With wolves literally nipping at her heels, the now pregnant Polyphonte flees home to her parents where she delivers two huge twin bear boy babies. And their names are Oreos and Agrius. And they're born as these gigantic babies. Uh, I can't imagine giving birth to two bear twins. But Polyphonte does it. She's a trooper. However, these two gigantic babies grow up to be gigantic half-beast men who live by no moral codes or rules and pretty much just roam the streets eating any strangers that they can find. Cannibalism in Greece, as in most cultures, is a no-no and especially angers Zeus. And Zeus sees all this going on and sends his messenger, god Hermes, down to cut off the hands and feet of the bear men. However, Ares, the god of war, and remember the great-grandfather of these two bear boys, decides to intervene when he sees some of his offspring uh, about to get their hands cut off. So he's able to talk Hermes down into just transforming them into birds instead. Oreos is transformed into a Eurasian eagle owl, which looks a lot like a great horned owl, and Agrius is transformed into a vulture, which is a bird sacred to Ares. And poor, poor Polyphonte is transformed into a Strix. And a Strix is described as a bird that cries by night without food or drink, with head below and tips of feet above, a harbinger of war and civil strife to men. There's also a female servant that somehow gets mixed up in all of it and gets transformed into a green woodpecker. Now the Strix uh, becomes a monster of Greek mythology popping up here and there and then also bleeding into medieval literature too. It's not really clear whether it's a bat or a bird. The cries at night really kind of hints at an owl, but then it says, uh, with head below and tips of feet above, which sounds a lot like a bat. So possibly the Greeks kind of smash these two flying things at night together into one creature. But I, I like this story of the Strix because when you hear the barred owl at night in the woods or when you see it, it really does scare you. Um, they really are spooky birds. And it's understandable why so many cultures have associated owls with evil throughout the years. So now let me jump into a general description of the barred owl, its range and habitat and diet. 
It looks a lot like other owls in its Strix genus, and it's kind of on the large side. It's not too much smaller than the Great Horned Owl, but it lacks those big ear tufts that the Great Horned Owl, and just has a round head. They can be up to two feet tall and have a disc-like face, which is common to many owls, and then those big forward-facing eyes. They're named Barred Owl for their alternating pattern of brown and white, which is seen on its head, chest, and back. They have a yellow bill and yellow feet and exhibit sexual dimorphism. The female is bigger than the male. As far as their range, they're historically a bird of mature forests. They're cavity nesters, so they rely on large hollow trees to breed. However, they occur over a diverse range of suburban backyards to lowland swamps and even some less mature forest. So they're really a versatile bird in uh, where you can find them. While they prefer deciduous or mixed forests, they can be found in coniferous forests also. They have a wide range along the eastern United States, pretty much stopping at the Great Plains. They continue up into Canada and across Canada and in the most recent decades have made it into the Pacific Northwest. There's also an isolated population in central Mexico. Now part of what makes this owl so successful is its generalist diet. A barred owl will eat whatever the hell it can get a hold of that it can overpower. Small mammals make up a big part of its diet, like with most owls we think of them eating, you know, mice. But it'll also eat frogs, salamanders, large insects. It's known to wade into streams and catch crayfish and fish. And it also likes to eat songbirds, too, up to the size of a northern flicker, which is a pretty damn big bird. And I've experienced this with barred owls. Uh, songbirds definitely hate them. And when they're around, the birds go crazy, even more so than they do with a hawk. It's like they really don't trust these birds because they are mostly active at night when the songbirds can't see. So I think that they're like boogeyman scared of them too, the way that historically people have been. I also found one study from Valdosta, Georgia where they found that barred owls fed large amounts of bats to their young during the nestling period. Barred owls' strategy for catching their food is to perch on a branch, and they have a sit-and-wait strategy for finding their prey. And when a prey item comes near, you know, walks underneath their branch or somewhere that they can see it, they'll swoop down and pin it, severing the neck vertebrae and covering their wings over it in a mantle to prevent its escape. If it's a large prey item, they'll bite off its head and then bring it up to a branch to eat. But if it's small enough, they'll just eat it right there on the ground. And like most owls, they will regurgitate the bones, fur, and other undigestible parts into owl pellets. Which I always remember dissecting those in um, elementary school and finding the little tiny bones and stuff in them. It was pretty cool. So what makes these owls such successful hunters, where they're able to hunt everything from frogs to fish in the dark. Well, we often think about owls, about their night vision, you know, uh, being able to see really well in the dark, and that's how they uh, find a lot of their prey. But really, um, it's the hearing that makes owls such great nocturnal hunters. I mentioned that facial disc that the barred owls have, and that's crucial for directing sound to their ears. Think of it almost like a... Um, the way that your ear is it's almost like they have their ear like projected right on the front of their face and all sound that hits it 
the facial disc will just direct the sound to their ears. The barred owl especially is dependent on hearing to find its prey too. It's in the family Strigidae, which contains the true owls, uh, as they call them. The other family contains the barn owls. So Strigidae can be split into two subfamilies. The Bubonae, which are called the visually hunting owls, and those contain screech owls, great horned owls, burrowing owls. When you look at these owls, these are the ones a lot of times they have the ear tufts, the, the horns, and when you look at them, they don't have that nice facial disc. Um, the way that uh, the barred owl does in the subfamily Strigenae, they are called the forest adapted and the hearing hunting owls. They have large external ears with an area of bare skin around the opening that contains specialized feathers and ear flaps that can move to adjust their facial disc and adjust the feathers around their ear to improve the efficiency of sound reception. So it's really cool. They're like a dynamic microphone, basically, that's just picking up the sound and directing it in different ways. And they do this. Uh, they can adapt their feathers, too, to kind of change things around to... Um, localize their prey too to almost do depth perception with their ears the way that when we look with two eyes you know we got two reference points to figure out how far away something is they can kind of do that with their ears too vision is also very um and if you want to know more about uh owls and uh, how important sound is for them check out my bird bobs episode i talk about some cool experiments where they proved how important sound is for owls compared to vision Vision is very important too. Uh, the eyes of owls are immovable in their sockets. They're less of like the little round eyeballs that a lot of animals have and just kind of these long projections coming out straight from the brain. And that's why owls can turn their heads to such great lengths uh, because they can't move their eyes in their sockets. So they have to be able to turn their head around to look. And they also have a retinal tapetum lucidum, which if you've ever seen cat's eyes in the dark, they reflect. Um, it's, it's from this retinal tapetum lucidum, which is basically a reflective coating on the back of the eye that helps to amplify light and helps them to see in the dark. In the barred owl, this is a bright orange red. So if you shine your flashlight at night on a barred owl, that's what you'll see reflecting back. Also, their iris is a dark brown to make it invisible in the dark. Most other owls have yellow eyes, so this is kind of a distinctive feature of the barred owl. Now, the breeding of barred owls is pretty interesting. They're monogamous and mate for life. They are very territorial, and often when you hear them calling back and forth, they're either finding a mate or reinforcing the relationship with their mate, or the male and female together will kind of call and define their territory call out to another couple you know this is my yard stay the fuck off this is my yard yeah yeah you stay off my yard that's not really funny whatever <laughs> so they like they defend their little area together and will live in it throughout their life they can start breeding at about two years old there are some cases where they'll uh, breed earlier though the male will perform calls to attract a female starting in the winter time when their courtship begins as it gets closer to the spring and time to lay some eggs, they become more and more centered around their future nest site for their courtship rituals. The male may perch near the female and bob, sway, and slide along a branch to entice her. 
courtship feeding has also been observed and also courtship preening where the birds will preen each other especially on the neck and head area and uh, from stuff I had saw about um, uh, captured barred owls they really like to have their heads scratched so that might be um, part of the preening they'll kind of scratch each other's head to you know show them show that they like each other and that they want to make some babies together barred owls will find a natural tree cavity or use a pre-existing hawk squirrel or crow's nest um, for their nest they may put some feathers twigs bark or grass in it to make it just a little more cozy the female will lay two to three eggs in the nest and they take about 28 to 33 days to hatch. The male will hunt while the female incubates the eggs. And their babies are pretty adorable. They're these little down covered fluff balls and it's really cool because at four to five weeks they'll start leaving the nest and kind of walking around branches even though they can't fly yet. You know, they want to they get outside. It's stuffy inside that tree cavity. And so if you're lucky, you'll see one of these little fluff balls walking around in a tree. At six weeks, they um, are first able to fly, but they don't leave the coop yet. They'll stay with their parents, and their parents will care for them for up to six months. And then after this time is over, it's time for the owls to go off and find their own territory, which is super difficult, and they really have to fight to make their place in the forest. If a parent loses a brood early, they will try for a second. I saw that the average lifespan of a barred owl in the wild is 10 years, but 20 in captivity. However, there's possibly barred owls that got as old as 30 years, and there's one record of uh, a barred owl couple that kept going to this same tree nesting um, cavity for 34 years. So let's talk about barred owl evolution. How did these crazy nocturnal hunters come to be? Well, owls come from the Afro-Aves radiation of birds. So these are birds that evolved in Africa and then spread out. That Afro-Aves radiation produced birds that we know, such as the woodpeckers, kingfishers, and bee-eaters. Some of these species stayed in Africa, while others went on to conquer the world. Now, the um, owl order Strigiformes contains about 225 species today, but was probably way more widespread in the past. Around 60 million years ago is when the Strigiformes order kind of initially formed, and they probably evolved to fill all kinds of ecological niches. And one group just happened to evolve to start hunting the rapidly rising populations of small mammals that were forming at that time. And many of these small mammals were nocturnal, so it was only natural that these birds began to adopt nocturnal hunting strategies to exploit all these little small rodents running around. And while all other forms of uh, the Strigiformes radiation were eventually displaced and died off, owls were the ones that were left. They had set a niche that no other birds have really been able to displace them from. I mentioned how there's two families of owls, the Strigidae, the true owls, which our barred owl is in, and the Titanidae, which is what the barn owls are in. I stumbled across a really cool thing that there apparently used to be giant barn owls that may have lived up until the 1700s in the Caribbean. I would love to do an episode just on that. Um, if you're listening, let me know if you, you'd like to hear that. So anyway, 
um, owls spread out um, across the uh, world, the early um, ancestors of them. And in North America, during the glaciation of the Pleistocene and Pleistocene era, uh, mitochondria DNA has shown that there were three isolated clades of barred owls in um, <laughs> seagulls. That there were three isolated clades of barred owls. There is one in the eastern U.S., kind of around Georgia, Florida area. There was a second isolated population in the Gulf Coast of the U.S., kind of around Louisiana. And then third, a isolated population in central Mexico in the highland pine areas along the volcanic belt. And that population is still there isolated today. One Zoom Tree of Life, my evolutionary tool, has the barred owl forming around 8.68 million years ago. And its uh, close relative, the spotted owl, split off about a million years later, around 7.28 million years ago. So barred owls formed uh, as a species and were kind of roaming around and the repeated cycle of glaciations and um, receding glaciers caused them to become separated at times. That Mexican population separated about 1.5 million years ago from all the other barred owl species. And it's different enough, in fact, that it has a different call from the barred owl. Here's the Mexican barred owl calling. And here's your typical barred owl call. The two U.S. populations, that one over in Georgia, Florida, and then the isolated one in Louisiana, they were separated about 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. And once the glaciers receded and opened up large swaths of new land across the U.S., which then forests began to grow in, the barred owls really just spread out and conquered new territories. And they're still spreading to this day, like the, their invasion of the Pacific Northwest, which is to the detriment of the spotted owl. And I thought it was interesting to think about because the last glacial maximum was about 14,000 to 15,000 years ago and then the glaciers began receding. And this also coincides with when First Nations people first started coming over into the U.S. So it's interesting that humans were starting to go into new lands in America at the same time as the barred owl was also starting to go out. So this really was like uncharted territory by both humans and animals. I think it's awesome to think about. So I'm going to talk about Audubon and his painting of the barred owl and what he has to say. For those of you that don't know, John James Audubon, um, famous naturalist and uh, ornithologist, uh, his Birds of America paintings were kind of some of the first in the in the 1700s to uh, display the birds um, that were here in America, and he gives pretty good descriptions, um, uh, sometimes heavily influenced with kind of the way that people thought about exploiting nature at that time but he has some good insights and kind of gives a uh, um, a view into the historical aspect of these birds too so audubon's painting shows the um, barred owl approaching a gray squirrel with its beak open and wings outstretched it looks like it's about to scarf that gray squirrel down 
Audubon describes its hooting as a disturber of the peace. Um, he talks about how when he's at his campsite having a nice time, these owls will start calling and just ruin his night. Oh, poor Audubon. <laughs> he also states that it's most numerous in Louisiana, um, where they can be found even in broad daylight. Uh, he really associates them with the um, swampland in Louisiana, and these birds do tend to like kind of lowland areas. Um, also, that just adds to the spookiness factor, where there's big old cypress trees and a swamp, and then you hear their crazy calls echoing. Um, that would scare the shit out of anybody. Audubon also talks about how the barred owl likes to kill farmers' poultry and is especially fond of frogs also. And while he says he's heard that they eat fish, um, Audubon loved to shoot and dissect birds, and he notes that he has never found a fish inside the stomach of a barred owl. He does also talk about how barred owls are often sold in New Orleans markets and are used for mousers in people's homes. And it wouldn't be Audubon if he doesn't talk about eating birds. And while he personally doesn't talk about eating the barred owl, he notes that the Creoles cook it into a gumbo. Mmm, owl gumbo. If there's anything I've learned from reading a lot of Audubon's bird descriptions is he loves to talk about all the, uh, <laughs> all the crazy stuff um, that people of Louisiana will put in their gumbo. So now let's hear from Tim, some highlights of my interview in the previous episode, and also some of Tim and I's cool experiences with Bard Owls. All right, I got Tim recording with me over Zoom. Uh, those of you who have listened to Dirty Bird from the beginning, our first three episodes, Tim was one of the first guests on it. It's good to have you back, Tim. Great to be back, John. Always a pleasure, and uh, it's been awesome to see the progression of dirty bird and have uh you know had the chance to listen to to all the episodes you've put out since those first couple and uh it's been great glad to be here yeah thanks tim and uh tim also uh is here for kind of a big moment in dirty bird with kind of having my first real interview with uh you know a researcher in the field of birds of not just one of my friends that i convinced to sit down and talk with me uh and timmy and i have listened to the interview and uh with peter singleton um who is a wildlife research uh, biologist out in the pacific northwest and him and i talked about the, the spotted owl and barred owl um, go back and definitely listen to that um, if you haven't. It's in its own standalone episode uh, before this episode, but um, we'll be kind of talking about some highlights of it and the things that interested us a lot. So, Tim, what did you think overall of the interview? Oh, that was an awesome interview. And like you said, it's uh, definitely a great thing to get a chance to have the perspective of a, a research wildlife biologist like that. And just the the different insight that he had is is something that I thought was you know that was just really cool for you to have that access and be able to to pose all those questions to him and I just thought it was really informative really well put together and I uh, really enjoyed it um, so one of my main takeaways from that uh, I was curious about the 
sort of the evolution of the barred owl to uh, develop that aggressive behavior that they've exhibited towards the spotted owls, uh, you know, with the the habitat disputes and um, just the kind of invasion of, of territory in the Pacific Northwest there. So I wanted to ask if you could expand on just sort of how they evolved to develop that aggressive behavior. Yeah, totally. Um, studying behavior is, is the evolution of behavior is really hard in animals. Um, early in the episode, I, I kind of go over that evolutionary history of owls and the barred owl in general, but I can kind of make some uh, generalizations uh, about kind of how that behavior evolved um, and also use a little bit of evidence for uh, backing it up. But um, sure. uh, but the barred owls uh, kind of uh, evolved in some very small territories during um, glaciation periods in America. Uh, they were kind of confined to uh, three different uh, areas. Um, and so these very small habitats and uh, within those areas, they probably developed that very territorial nature, um, being able to be a generalist food, uh, both scavenging and hunting pretty much anything that they can overpower and eat and having to really defend these territories because surrounding them was just glacier. So they don't really, didn't really have anywhere to move from there. Um, and as the glaciers receded, they were able to spread out and kind of establish their more pioneering territories. Um, but they still continue to have that small territory area that they defend very vigorously. And mm -hmm. along with that is with the uh, great horned owl um, and uh, having to deal with owls that are larger with them, uh, preying on them, the great horned owl will really go after barred owls if it sees them in its territory because one, they're a competition for a food source. And then two, the barred owl is like smaller and uh, way less heavy than the great horned owl. Even though the barred owl isn't that much smaller than the great horned owl, the barred owl is uh, half the weight of a great horned owl. So like the great horned yeah. owl's yeah, I mean, he sees it as like an easy meal. So um, the barred owl really kind of, and then the barred owl will eat owls that are smaller than it too. Um, so it's kind of in this weird middle role where it's getting preyed on by something bigger than it, but it also can prey on lots of other stuff. So uh, that probably factors in a lot with its uh, aggressive uh, defending territories because if it's kicked out by a great horned owl, then it has to establish itself somewhere else. Right. Um, and, but they're not all just, um, you know, crazy uh, territorial aggression because they actually interact pretty well with um, raptor species. Like I was reading that they'll nest um, in old hawk nests a lot of times. Uh, and uh sometimes they'll even nest right near red-shouldered hawks and they have really no apparent conflict with them. I guess the red-shouldered hawks are like, yeah, well, we're hunting stuff during the day. You're hunting stuff during the night. Like it's like they're mm -hmm. shift workers or something, you know, they don't really, it's like if your roommate works the night shift and you're doing the day, like you never really conflict with each other because you know, right, you're right. sleeping while the other one's out and, and everything. So they're not just all total aggression, but I loved Peter's talking about calling in the owls and kind of how aggressively they would come in and attack. Let me play yeah. that uh, part where he's using the, um, the owl dummy to, to attract the barred owls in. 
Did you ever uh, witness or hear anecdotally about barred owls um, fighting with spotted owls or driving them off? You know, I never did. I never did. Mm-hmm. But but there are folks that that have have tried that. You know, um, there was there was one 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 guy that actually put um, put together you know some taxidermic mounts of um, of spotted owls that had oh. pressure sensors in their in their heads and and went mm-hmm. out to to see how hard they got hit by the by the territorial territorial barred owls and yeah they they got hit really hard <laughs> wow oh my god that's that's kind of cool that reminds me of like those games you know where you would like punch the uh punching bag and it tells you how much force it has yeah <laughs> but that's that's kind of my take on how they evolved to be so aggressive just the fact that they developed within small areas that were surrounded by glaciers and really had to carve out their territory um, amongst Mm -hmm. themselves and then were dealing with uh, predators such as the great horned owl. Yeah yeah that's really interesting and I I'm glad that you uh, had some more you know research and thoughts on that because I thought like I said that was a really interesting aspect of the the interview with Peter and um, I didn't realize that they you know, they had that kind of territorial aggression, but definitely makes sense with the, uh, the competition with the great Hornells in the East. Um, so speaking of other uh, owl species, um, he also touched briefly on the hybridization of the barred owl and the spotted owl. Um, and I think you mentioned you, you had some other thoughts and research on that as well. Yeah, definitely. Let me play a quick clip of him talking about that. Sure. So uh, would you be able to talk about the hybridization of these species? And is that where the future of the spotted owl is going? Is that it's going to become some kind of hybrid species with the barred owl in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, you know, good question. Um, yeah, so, you know, they are, they are, you know, cogeners. They're really, really closely related. You know, they, they were historically, you know, separated probably, you know, since prior to the Pleistocene. Um, you know, by glaciation patterns and right. maybe we're, we're watching this sort of, you know, natural change in distribution, you know, happening. Um, what we have seen in terms of hybridization is that we, we do see, the, we do see, you know, hybridization, particularly when spotted owls are relatively abundant and barred owls are relatively rare. So mm. you know, what happens is that you know, barred owls will mate with spotted owls um, most frequently during the initial sort of, you know, colonization phase of, of, of population expansion. Um, but it, you know, when there, when there are lots of other barred owls to choose from, the barred owls don't, don't tend to be very interested in the spotted owls. Yeah, and so the um, hybridization of the barred owl and spotted owl is really interesting. They are a sister species. Um, They were probably kind of separated by the Great Plains and had uh, and so hadn't intermingled for millions of years but uh, now that they are starting to uh, get together uh, they're able to reproduce and and produce viable offspring that can uh, have their own um, children. Hmm. Part of this uh, interaction with um, Peter talks about that with uh, the it's usually kind of the leading members of the barred owls when they come into a new territory. 
where there's lots of other spotted owls, the barred owls will mate with some of the spotted owls that are around. But if there's a lot of barred owls around, the barred owls will kind of prefer to mate with their own barred owls instead of the spotted owls. And when I studied this, uh, it seems to be male spotted owls mating with female barred owls. And Mm. the reason why this is, is because part of the courtship uh, ritual of barred owls and spotted owls is that they'll bring food items to a male will bring a food item to a female. And remember that barred owls have a more generalist diet than the spotted owls mm-hmm. do. Spotted owls are almost strictly just small mammals, you know, voles, moles, and mice. Um, whereas the barred owl will eat tons of different stuff, frogs, fish, uh, crawdads, you name it. And so the male barred owls, if they're trying to court a female spotted owl, you know, they'll bring like the female spotted owl a crayfish and the female spotted owl is like, what the hell is this? I can't eat this. It doesn't have fur or a tail or, you know, doesn't squeak. Um, But the male spotted owls will uh, pull up to a uh, female uh, barred owl and they'll have like a shrew or something. And the female spotted owl is like, all right, you know, I'll eat this. Like, you know, a frog would have been fine too, but you know, this is good. And so then she'll kind of accept mating with that uh, male spotted owl. Um, So that's kind of what we're seeing with the hybridization. And really it seems like the hybrids are a a small number, but uh, it's still there. Um, And I really thought it was interesting in the interview, Peter and I kind of tossing around, is this like a new species forming? Are the barred owls just going to totally take over and just have mm-hmm. a little bit of genetic imprint from the spotted owls? And we really don't know where, where this will go with the, the hybrids and everything. But um, I thought it was really cool that the behaviors um, of these owls kind of separated how they would mate. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's really cool stuff. And uh interesting how the sort of generalist diet and the the predatory habits of the barred owl factor into the the mating situation there. So one of the other um, points that I thought was really interesting from the interview um, and something that I've been hearing around where I live as well is the the interesting calls that the, the barred owls make. And I know you guys expanded on that a little bit. One of the things I was curious about is similar to how we know songbirds have uh, developed different calls for, you know, communication versus sort of an alarm system. Um, Do you know of anything that's, uh, that's been found out about that as far as the the different hoots, I guess, that the the barred owls use? So, yeah, I do. Um, And I definitely want to talk about that. Uh, The barred owls, their calls are incredible and really varied and, sometimes incredibly scary. Uh, uh, what, yeah. what have you been hearing down there in Charlotte, North Carolina? There's just, a, like you said, there's some some eerie ones sometimes. And uh, there, there's actually been a, a good amount of owl activity around us in a, you know, a neighborhood with a, a good amount of, you know, tree canopy and wooded areas. Um, but I've been surprised at how how high the owl activity is we've actually seen two barred owls around the neighborhood um and you can hear them on on most nights really um so like you mentioned it's just a a variety of different calls sometimes there's some uh some pretty eerie sounding ones um but you know i've i've come to know those as, as barred owl calls but don't really know the the distinction between you know why they're making whichever call they're making at that time 
Yep. And yeah, they can be really eerie. Uh, I was camping the other weekend and they, they kind of woke me up in the middle of the night. And uh, yeah. before I really knew what was going on, you know, I was kind of like scared for a moment. I was like, oh, it's just a bar now. But uh, right. I'll also use, I have recordings on my phone. And so I'll use those. If I hear a bar now, I'll play it. And uh, you can oh, nice. use it to kind of, uh, they'll start calling back, you know, thinking there's mm-hmm. a rival mail or something. Um, right. Just cool. to kind of illustrate how, uh, scary these calls can be let me play uh the clip where um peter talks about encountering some campers that got scared off by a bar now um i do have a fun vocalization story if you if you want that yes of course um, you know i was i was going for a hike a few a few years ago and looked up on google's google maps this trail that i was going into and and there was this weird thing that popped up on uh, on google maps where it was the the, the sasquatch detection database Hmm. Um, where, you know, they had all these, all these Sasquatch detection points, <laughs> you know, on this map. And I, I looked at the, um, I looked at this one point that was at the trailhead where I was going to go hiking from. And it was these, these people that were camped at these trailheads, this trailhead. And they said that they had heard these monkeys, these apes <laughs> falling from the tree that was right above their, their campsite. And they got so freaked out because Sasquatch was in this tree next to next to the campsite <laughs> that they packed up in the middle of the night and they left. <laughs> and I looked at it and I looked at that location. It's like, oh yeah, I know that pair of barred owls. So I really love uh, that where they thought it was Sasquatch up in the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's pretty stuff. hilarious. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if I didn't know what it was and I'm out in the middle of the woods and heard that, I might think it's like Sasquatch too. Yeah. <laughs> but so we talked about how territorial these guys are and their calls definitely factor into that. Um, they'll live in a territory the whole entire life and, and their calls are how they really hone and establish it. It's also how they keep and attract mm-hmm. their mates. So the most common call is that who cooks for you? Who cooks for you? Uh, oh, call. Yeah. Um, it's the most common one heard. It's uh, it's usually done back and forth between uh, either rival males or the female will also join in with it too. She usually has a higher pitched voice than the male does. And that's kind of they'll call back and forth their territory, similar to how you'll hear cardinals, uh, cardinal males doing their territorial call. And then another cardinal will answer in the distance. And uh, Mm -hmm. just to kind of define, like, this is my place. Don't come near. And really kind of listening to the um, pitch and tone and how fast the calls come can tell you the state of the bird. But I've also noticed the call that is um, defined as like, uh, I've heard people describe it as like monkeys, like sounding like monkeys. And yeah. that's mm-hmm. what uh, those Sasquatch uh, uh, campers were hearing too. And right. that is, that's normally done between a, a male and female. It's almost like their love song together. Yeah, that's really interesting, and uh, I, 
I didn't know about the, you know, since their call is, is different from a songbird, definitely not, not considered a song. I don't think it's, um, you know, interesting how they still have the distinction between the, the different calls that they use. And I've definitely heard that sort of monkey like call as well. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's always a, an interesting one, you know, oh, when you yeah. re- recognize that it's coming from a bird. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah it's cool. all really cool stuff. And um, it is. go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, you're good. Um, I was just going to say, usually during the breeding season in um, winter, kind of like December to March is when they're really uh, uh, breeding, establishing their mates, getting ready to lay eggs. So you'll really hear a lot of vigorous calls then. Um, probably mm-hmm. what you, you've been hearing around Charlotte right now is the late summer and fall calls. Those mm-hmm. occur when juveniles are starting to disperse and they're trying to establish their own territories. So, oh, interesting. The, yeah, so the juveniles will try to set up spot somewhere. And so they'll start calling and usually there's already a bar, uh, barred out with established territory nearby. So um, mm-hmm. you can get uh, um, a lot of conflicts there and, and hear a lot of variety of their aggressive calls there. But they'll also be calling mm-hmm. back and forth like, Hey, you know, the already established pairs will be calling, saying, this is our spot. Don't you come in here, young un, you know, right. keep, keep moving mm-hmm. on. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So the way they call, you can listen and hear if you hear other ones calling back to them in the distance and kind of figure out how big their territory is that way. And then, of course, if you hear hmm. something strange, they're probably fighting. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, awesome. I, uh, I love hearing that information and, you know, having the, again, the resource of the, the wildlife biologists, uh, in the interview that you did and just, you know, your additional research and your thoughts on it. It's, it's all really cool stuff. And, um, the barred owl has always been a, a, a raptor species that I've been particularly interested in and just kind of fascinated by, um, largely because of, the time that we saw one in our uh, Williamsburg house. Um, so I know we were going to share that story. Uh, do you want to start off on that and kind of retell how, um, how that went? Yeah, I'll start it off and I'll have you come in, uh, you know, at the part uh, where you first saw it and everything. So to sure. set up the story, yeah, we were living in Williamsburg, Virginia, and we had kind of a, a spot that bordered some woods that bordered a park. Um, and we would kind of, go out in the woods like we were little kids and you know look for cool stuff and look for birds and one day we were out there and it was near uh dusk and um we're walking around we hadn't really seen anything too cool um but you and me were kind of walking quietly through the woods and um i got like the hair rate like i swear the hair on the back of my neck Mm -hmm. stood up and i just got that feeling that something's looking at you and I look up and I, he, I could hear some birds. I think it was a pair of cardinals. I could hear them just freaking out. And so I knew something was, you know, nearby. I thought it was like maybe a, a hawk or something. And so I was kind of looking for that. But then I got that feeling something was staring at me. And I looked up and I just saw two big eyes in that facial disc of the barred owl. Mm-hmm. And it was sitting maybe 15 feet off the ground in a tree. And there's cardinals kind of flying around the base of the tree, freaking out, um, alerting the forest that there's an owl here. And he is just staring at me. And then I hear you coming up behind and I kind of turn and I'm like, shh, and, uh, you know, telling you to come on. So do you want to pick up from there? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. So I remember, you know, we were walking around and uh, we hadn't seen too much, a, a couple little birds here and there um, on our walk at that point. But I remember um, just walking along and seeing you, you know, frozen and just like I, I looked up and I saw you kind of motioning to me and you were trying to tell me, you know, walk as quietly as you can. And then you, you kind of pointed as well. Um, and at first I couldn't even see it just because of, you know, how well it blended with the, the wooded background. But um, as I, you know, inched a little bit closer, I saw what you were talking about and, and man, was that cool. It was just, uh, you know, how close you were able to get to it. And, and like you said, the, um, some of the songbirds around were just going crazy with, uh, you know, their warning signals and everything that there was a, a predator nearby. So, um, so that was really awesome. And definitely, you know, at that point, the, the coolest birding experience that I had had. Um, and that was just, it was a great spot that you saw it because like I said, it was really well blended in and it was awesome to just, you know, be able to, to look at them perched there for a minute and then, um, kind of taking off and, and gliding through the, through the woods on, on the way out was, was awesome. So that was just a really cool experience that I'll, I'll definitely remember for a long time. Yeah, he let us look at him for a while, too. It was probably mm -hmm. a good five, ten minutes we were standing there. And then he oh, just yeah. silently took off and glided through the trees. Uh, yeah. And I did see him one more time. I remember I was out there kind of at dusk again after work and was walking around. And uh, kind of similar situation. I was walking back to the house, and there were some kind of un thick understory uh, thorn uh shrubs and stuff and mm -hmm. i heard cardinals again freaking out um i think yeah he liked going after these cardinals or these cardinals just hated him because mm -hmm. i heard him freaking out again and so i'm like looking at the cardinals and kind of walking towards the the shrub that they're in and then all of a sudden it, it was you know kind of made startled me all of a sudden just big owl shape just boom swooped mm -hmm. down from a branch and flew right by me and flew off into the woods and wow. uh you know and then the cardinals shut uh shut up um uh they were happy he was gone but yeah right. that that was pretty awesome oh is, is that cooper in the background there no no that was a, a neighbor's dog that he's a little mouthy so. <laughs> well yeah maybe he's saying tim it's time for you to get back to work because uh <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well well thanks tim i appreciate you joining me uh joining me here and um uh looking forward to doing some more episodes of dirty bird with you in the future oh man it's always great to be back and i appreciate you having me um always a pleasure and you know especially with this bird it was it was really awesome to get to listen to that interview and uh Glad I could be a part of it and looking forward to the rest of the episode. Well, awesome, Tim. Well, you take care. You too, man. Thank you. That was great. I love having Tim on the show. Um, what a great burger friend he is. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this episode with some myths and legends. This one was a little bit um, difficult to research. Um, Native American folklore and folklore across the world in general Owls are often associated with death and monsters. Um, however, most of the Native American folklore I could found centered around the Great Horned Owl. I think it's just such a conspicuous figure that um, a lot of people really focused on that. The Seminole people of Florida told a legend of a monster called Stikini, which would look like a normal person during the day, but at night would vomit up their souls and organs to become owl monsters that fed on human hearts. 
And I like that, that they would vomit up their um, uh, souls and their organs the way that an owl will vomit up its owl pellets with the bones and fragments. The Cherokee word for the great horned owl, um, skilly, uh, meant both witch and great horned owl. So they were one and the same, showing how closely related uh, they associated them with evil. But not everything about owls was considered evil. The Cherokee were known to bathe children's eyes with water um, in which owl feathers were floating in order to help them stay up all night for a ceremony. And there's a whole uh, uh, taboo about the feathers. Um, you would have to find the feathers. You couldn't kill an owl and take its feathers. That was terrible, terrible luck. But I did find one legend that specifically talked about the barred owl. Um, it's a Cherokee legend uh, called The Owl Gets Married. So in this legend, uh, there's a widow, and she has one daughter. And the widow is always telling her daughter, you must marry a good hunter, you must marry a good hunter. The daughter listens to her mom and promises that she will do as her mother says. One day, a suitor comes and asks for the girl's hand, and promised that he was a good hunter. The widow and the daughter believe him, and the daughter leaves to go live with him. The next morning, the daughter asked if he was going hunting. The man thought about it and said, no, but I'm going fishing instead. He was gone all day and came back home with only three small fish. The next day he left to go hunt, but came home with only newts. The next day he went hunting again, but returned with only scraps from where other hunters had butchered a deer. Now the woman was suspicious, so on the fourth day she follows him out. She follows him to a river where she sees him transform into a, a guku. Now a guku is the um, Cherokee word for the barred owl, and it's onomatopoeic, because their call sounds like oo-goo-koo, hoo-hoo, oo-oo, and so you can kind of get it there. So as she watches him transform into an owl, she's pissed, and she watches her husband slash owl swoop into the river and grab a crayfish, fly to the bank, and transform back into a man. She angrily runs home first, and um, as he walks into the house, she asks him where all the fish is, and he sheepishly shows the crayfish and says, I'm sorry, I couldn't catch any fish, and Al scared them all away. And she goes, I think you're the Al, and drives him out of the house. He flees into the woods, where he pined away with grief and love until there was no more flesh left on any part of his body except his head. So I um, love Native American legends in general, um, and I love this one because it uh, describes the hunting behavior and the generalist diet of this bird great. Um, and we also get kind of a, a physical description too, that huge facial disc really exemplifies the head of this um, of this animal. And I guess to the Native Americans, it kind of looked like all the rest of his body had wasted away and it was just a head that was left. Well, that's all I got on Bard Owls. I encourage uh, everyone to go out at dusk or dawn and um, and listen for these awesome creatures. Uh, they're uh, pretty much year-round. You can hear them. They're, right now, it's uh, fall, and you can hear them kind of fighting a lot because juveniles are trying to establish their own territory. So um, you can definitely hear them and um, be on the lookout come wintertime. Uh, 
they're going to be starting their mating rituals and calling back and forth, trying to, you know, make some little owl babies. And so you'll be able to hear that too. Let me know what you thought about the interview. Check that out. Um, I'd love to do more stuff like that in the future. Well, thanks for listening, you guys. And as always, stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. And our outro music is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. And also, check out our theme song music video on YouTube. Our cover art is done by my beautiful fiancé, Lauren. Thanks for listening. Send any listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.